This episode of Brain Matters is brought to you by Maze Engineers. Go to mazeengineers.com slash brainmatters and enter the code PERK. Like your soon-to-be perky cochleas. Um, uh, thanks for that copy, Lauren. Uh, to get 10% off your quote, that's mazeengineers.com slash brainmatters. Hey, everybody. This is Brain Matters. I'm Matt Davis. And I'm Anthony Lacanina. How are you feeling today? You look a little down today. Well, there's a little bit of a tragedy in the Brain Matters community. That um, sounds a, a very dire. It's, like, it's um, no one, no can one you please you... rewind and and uh, expand upon that? It's it's a technological tragedy. At Brain Matters, we have a hard drive that we've been saving all of our episodes on, and yeah, I mean the hard drive that is like backed up in fifty places, right? Um, more like it was the only one. <laughs> it seems to be having problems. Long story short, um, we may have lost all of the audio content of previously released episodes, which I guess isn't really that big of a deal, but we lost maybe a couple of already recorded ones. So uh, we're, we're working on trying to get it recovered at the moment. Uh, we have hopes that it will be possible. But Wait, full disclosure, I was already aware of this information, but I had not actually connected the 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 notion that we did lose a bunch of the previous episodes as well. <laughs> oh, all of so them. So this. Oh, okay. So I'm having an actual reaction in real time now. Uh, but hey, uh, you know wh- what are you gonna do? That's no. what it is. And this is not an attack on our wonderful producer Lauren Krieger. These things happen. Technology fails. But you know what? We still have. Thankfully, she's saved a bunch of new episodes, so we still have many coming out. Okay. Well, you know. Let's get to some I'm positive. Totally <laughs> fine. I just want to let's. I want some good news. I want some. I want some sunshine in this episode. So if you could tell me uh, who you talked to today, that'd be great. So in today's episode, uh, we talked to Dr. John Pierce, who is a professor at the very university that we are students at, University of Texas at Austin, and he has a really robust research program here. He's using this model organism, the nematode. C. elegans. Yeah, we talked to Dr. Sean Lockery in a previous episode. One of our very early episodes. Yeah, uh, he's another, actually, he was, uh, Sean Lockery was uh, John's. Yeah, he was a mentor. Mentor for him, that's right. Uh, So tell us a little bit about that little nematode and why why it's an attractive tool for neuroscience research. Well, it's really easy to do sort of mass experiments on these little nematodes. They're only a millimeter long, so you could have dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And really, one of the big tools that is used is uh, using genetic approaches. So you can do all sorts of mutations, and this is quite useful for uh, inducing a change and observing the outcome of that change. We really get into all the details in the episode. But in the case of Dr. John Pierce, he's really interested in how certain diseases like Alzheimer's and Down syndrome, what their genetic basis may be. And he uses this model organism to study, to ask these questions. Okay. So he can use this little nematode and can he, I don't know, figure out how Alzheimer's disease is like progressing and what kind of drugs help slow this progression, but in a much more rapid and like high throughput kind of fashion, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. That is really the big power. And we also have as we mentioned in the episode, we have the complete wiring diagram of the nematode. We know all the neurons. We know who they're connected to. So that's a very, very important tool for discovering how particular classes of neurons or particular cell types impact the progression of these diseases. Dr. Pierce has a very interesting story. He has this sort of personal motivation in an aspect of his research that he goes into in the episode. And I really enjoyed hearing that perspective. So you guys also in the episode talk about a crowdfunding type of website that do you want to talk a little bit about that right now? Yeah. I mean, you've heard of Kickstarter, you've heard of Indiegogo. You may have ever wondered, like, how can I contribute to science? Is there some sort of mechanism for directly supporting science? And that model has been adopted. Various websites uh, that use this fundraising model where labs can actually, uh, uh, they can actually get contributions directly from the public. So there's a good number of them out there. Um, in this case, uh, University of Texas at Austin, they have, a, they have their own internal one. It's called Horn Razor. And Dr. Pierce is raising money to fund undergraduate 
uh, stipends to work over the summer to work on Alzheimer's disease. Um, so this is really, really a nice win-win because there's going to be money going directly to Alzheimer's research as well as contributing to the education of potential undergrads that want to pursue science. That's great. Uh, could, do you know the uh, information so people can go check that out? You could just go to Hornraiser and search for Dr. John Pierce. I believe the title of the of the of the fundraising effort is called Help Students to Discover Treatments for Alzheimer's. Awesome. So that ends, it looks like, April 22nd. So I want to encourage, if any of you guys want to go check that out, please go to Hornraiser, look up Dr. John Pierce, and throw as much as you can to help support undergrads doing Alzheimer's research. I strongly encourage it. And we actually do get into it in the episode as well. So there's a, it's a little bit more fleshed out and the goals and the details. So why don't we get to the episode? I'm excited to hear it. Let's do it. Perk those cochlea. Yeah, of course. Before we get started, we need to tell you about Maze Engineers. Maze Engineers is building custom, made-to-order behavioral neuroscience mazes. The company's founder, Shuhan, told us that they work with scientists to build the mazes that they need. We asked around if you could dream up any behavioral maze and have it built, what would you ask for? Bridget, you just got the grant and you can do the experiment of your dreams. What does the maze look like? What if it was like a haunted house maze? Walls moving, rooms changing, and different rooms for different operant tasks. Well, good news. The guys over at Maze Engineers can do it. If you tell them about your experiment, they will fit your protocol and experimental needs exactly. All right, Brian, we know we can count on you for big ideas. What's the one behavioral experiment that you need to do? So it would be nice to have a good behavioral measure of uh, animals' ability to localize sound. So what I'd like to do is you have a circular rotating chamber and there'll be a triangular wedge in there that if the animal enters it gets shocked. But because it's rotating, the animal will need to constantly update his map of where this wedge is. And it'll do that because there'll be a speaker uh, that's also rotating with the chamber uh, playing certain frequency sounds. Oh, inspired by the Andre Fenton experiments, as featured in this very podcast. I'll bet you the guys at Maze Engineers can make that happen. Shuhan, what do you think? That sounds like a great challenge. Let me send these ideas to my team and we'll get back to you. I'm telling you, they can do anything. Maze Engineers makes meticulously designed mazes and robotics for creative scientists and their ideas. Check them out today. Visit mazeengineers.com slash brainmatters for 10% off the quote with the code PERK, P-E-R-K. That's mazeengineers.com slash brain matters, offer code PERK. You know, like perking your cochlea, that's that's kind of our line. Don't, yeah, put that in the, put that in the offer code. Hi, I'm John Pierce. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, so I'd like to start off very simply. Uh, is there some event in your early life that led to your interest in science? I grew up in central Massachusetts, yeah. became interested in science, I think especially when I was in high school. I, th- I definitely knew I was interested in science. I always liked science fiction. I, I was interested in medicine. I, I volunteered in the hospital uh, and also a lab. And in my senior year, I took a physics class and a human biology class as kind of a, as a contest to see which one would pique my Ooh, interest more. Yeah, life and, or and, physical sciences. And the, yeah. uh, the, the, the life sciences won yeah. on that one. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was still interested in the, the harder aspects, so I, I kept close to that side, and that, that's, I think, how I found myself here at, in our department, which is, I think, yeah, our, our department's like that here at UT. Mm-hmm. Were your parents academics, or was there some no, inspiration? No, not at all. 
Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it took a long time to explain why I wasn't going into medicine. So uh, there were doctors. No, they, yeah. they just thought that, I mean, it's more obvious. Oh, I for, see, yeah. But most people, if you are if you like science and, and biology, most people think you're going to become a doctor. Or I remember, yeah, one day when I was young, I think when I graduated, I was telling, hey, I want to go into research. And I think my mom said something like, but but you can communicate with people so well. Researchers don't can't, can't talk to people. I said, well, that's why we need, you know, <laughs> to go into research uh, yeah, be able to yeah. talk to people well, yeah mm, that's what we're doing here right now so <laughs> how did that carry on into your decision to go to grad school how did that uh, manifest yeah initially uh i was interested in maybe going into medical school and like maybe i think a lot of other students and i became disillusioned with that because i want i got bored with just memorizing things and i'm not i'm not great at memorizing things i was more interested in what was not known i'd be the the, the person in the class asking questions and the, the professor would be saying well we don't know the answer to that and I was amazed at how much we didn't know. And I, I wasn't interested in the, the cutthroat med school mentality of just trying to memorize things to become a you know, medical profession for the money. So, yeah, I, I got interested in research by volunteering in a lab that, construct, that did research on bugs. Uh, okay. That was pretty interesting. What kind of bugs? I, I got really interested in bugs when yeah, I was an undergrad. Yeah. Uh, moths okay. and caterpillars. Yeah. And uh, they're amazing. They go from, you know, for, as a caterpillar, they're these creepy, crawly things with 10 legs and within just a week to a couple months can transform their whole body into this fierce flying machine with gigantic eyes, wings. Our engineers can't do this yet. No, no, uh, yeah. <laughs> and think about the nervous system perspective. They, they have to rewire the entire nervous system pretty much and develop all these sensory structures, and uh, that's phenomenal. Just becoming a different organism, like, yeah. quite literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got very interested in that. So I, I looked for grad programs where people were studying that topic. I naively started applying to entomology programs, and Karen Mesh at the University of Minnesota, wrote me back and said, hey, you should apply to neuroscience grad programs. We could pay you to come here. And she was right. I applied to different neuroscience programs, uh, those that included people who were doing research on bugs. And I'm still friends with Karen to this day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to the University of Oregon, and they had a strong uh, neuroethology component to their, their neuroscience program. And I worked on a really fun project there with bugs, working on how caterpillars, uh, the neurons that innervate the legs and the back of the caterpillars to make them move around. Sure. Um, they don't need them as moths, right? They don't have legs. In the yeah, back of their body. okay. So what happens to those neurons? And they have these neurons in every segment. Yeah, so like do they become controlling of other structures that, in the moth or do they... Die is that like as yeah as a, exactly what you just yeah. said. So we yeah so I helped out with the I came in just at the right time to see the exciting really exciting part of our project that came up with the answer you just said. It's not intuitive that it, it, it's amazing the, the neurons know what to do. So neurons in some segments would go through programmed cell death during metamorphosis, and the seemingly identical neurons, you know, homologous neurons that are in other segments would kind of shrivel up their processes and then regrow them to innervate new things. So some of the neurons ended up innervating muscles to help pump up the wings as the the young butterfly or moth uh, emerges from the pupa. Yeah, yeah. And one of the cool thing about this project was you could dissect out these single neurons that are identified, put them side by side, label different colors in a Petri dish. Whoa. And they'd stay alive for over a month. But if you gave them the steroid signal that they would experience during metamorphosis, the one that's supposed to die dies. The one that's not supposed to die kind of changes around its mm -hmm. processes. They intrinsically yeah. knew what they're supposed to do. That, yeah. that was mind-blowing to me. Yeah. I love when an experiment is so sort of visually impactful, too, or it's just mm -hmm. like uh, obvious right there. That one is is not the thing, and that one is growing, and then... Whoa, yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I really enjoyed being part of that project, and I thought I might want to continue working on with bugs, but then I became enamored with a different research model. And, Is that uh, the C. elegans? Yep. So I started working with Sean Lockery. I guess he's a former guest. He is. He's one show. of our early ones. Yeah. I yeah. was his first graduate student. And Sean, Sean's interested. He comes from a computational neuroscience background. He used to work with leeches. Mm -hmm. And he would use neural network uh, algorithms to figure out neural, how neural networks might work and using leeches as his model organism. And that's a great system because the neurons are large. Uh, they're about 300 microns in diameter. You could record for them for days if you wanted to, and many neurons all at once. Uh, but he, he was well aware that. 
they have lots of neurons. And if you want to compute, if you want to model all of them, is is it became a challenging project. Yeah. Uh, so we heard about C. elegans. So he started up a lab where he tried to model all 302 of the worm neurons and try to figure out how they all behave. But there there was a lot of there was a deficit in knowledge of how worms behave and also on physiology and how no one had done patch clamp recording of worm neurons before. Uh, Sean. So I joined him. His lab is funny. I is fortuitous. I. I did a rotation in his lab the same time another student asked her. She came and talked to him earlier. She said, oh, I want to work on physiology. And I said, okay, I, I want to be different. I'll work on behavior. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I stuck with it I, in his lab, and we figured out how worms, the behavioral strategy they use to perform chemotaxis. This is how worms find odors and smells, tastes that they like. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That was my that was a major part of my thesis. We figured out that worms are kind of playing a blind man's bluff kind of game. Yeah, they only have a sensor at the tip of their nose. Uh, these are microscopic worms. They're only about a millimeter long. They're yeah. not the ugly, gross-looking earthworms that you see no. in your garden. You wouldn't you, really notice them if they were just on the table. No, in fact, if yeah. you're vegan and get pesticide-free lettuce and for your, for your, you're probably eating them. Yeah, uh, yeah, because they're they're all over the place in the soil and on vegetation. Yeah. We, we figured out that to find their favorite food or, or smells or tastes, they're, they're, they're using a blind man's bluff game. So they can't see so well, uh, and they don't need to, to for smells or tastes. What they do is they have the sensor at the tip of their head, and they're optimists. They like to move forward. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but if they sense that they're going the wrong way, like the attractants kind of decreasing in concentration, then, then they'll, they'll tend to turn around randomly. Yeah, new direction. A basically. new direction. Yeah, yeah, and then kind of like you would if you're playing a game of hot or cold, where you're you're searching around, then your friends say cold, 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 and then after a short while you'll turn around, yeah. try a new direction. So if you use that strategy, it's fairly effective, and they can find the peaks of attractant gradients that way. And we use computational modeling of the behavior to pretty much show that they use you know, chemotax can be described mainly by this simple childhood. Came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and why did I go from bugs to worms? Uh, with worms, we could study this topic with knowing the identity of every neuron or every cell in the whole body. The worms, yes, three hundred and two yes. neurons. Yeah, they have eight about eight thousand synapses. We know each one of them. Uh, so when we study this topic, we could talk. We could talk about which neuron is doing what in this behavior. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of fun. We have a parts list. I was going to ask you to sort of sell me on the worm as uh-huh. a great model. I know there's a lot of good reasons. Certainly having that that map is one of the useful ones. Yeah. So with that, we were able to, uh, even with my thesis, we were able to answer some questions about, for instance, how, how can they tell the difference between different tastings? In the 90s, it was... You know, they discovered the olfactory receptors and some of the taste receptors, and it, but it, that didn't answer how animals can tell the difference between the, the smells or tastes. So we found uh, one of the first mutants, along with the Bergman lab, uh, in a parallel study, how uh, a gene that's required not for tasting, but for being able to discriminate between tastes. Uh, and we found that the worm, the worm has, if you look at the worm's face, imagine a, a worm looking at you. It doesn't have eyes. It has a mouth in the center, and it has on the left and right side this nose, these kind of nostrils. And in them, they have these different sensory neurons that mm-hmm. would taste taste things or smell things. And we've, we found that they're bilaterally asymmetric. Neurons, some neurons on the right side would taste chloride. Some neurons on the left side would taste sodium, even yeah. though they look otherwise identical. Mm-hmm. And we found a mutant where this asymmetry was broken. They were, became symmetric. Ooh. And when that happened, this label line system for those codes was broken. So they couldn't, they could smell, they could taste each uh, salt, but they couldn't discriminate between them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because they got confusing signals. So that, 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 was, that was fun. But then uh, this, is a, this thesis was purely basic neuroscience. Uh, and I wanted to try to move on to something different for a postdoc. Yeah, yeah. And so you've sort of stuck with that worm theme for the, for the next phase of your career. And currently you have several projects using the worm. Could you talk about what the main questions are in your lab? What are the big ideas that you're addressing? Okay, yeah, some the right now since 2008 I've run a neuroscience lab here at UT where we 
exploit the strengths of this worm, the C. elegans it's called, a system to study the functions of genes in the nervous system uh, and the amazing things that animals can do with them. And more often than not, these genes are conserved with humans and other yeah. animals, and things work the same way. It's pretty remarkable. What's I, an example of that? I mean, uh, uh, you know, some examples are, I mean, the olfactory receptors, yeah. they, they were, uh, the evi- biochemical evidence that olfactory receptors were G-protein coupled receptors was, uh, you know, from rodents uh, by Linda Buck and Ac- Richard Axel, but their first behavioral evidence uh, that was conclusive was using C. elegans by Corey Bargman's group. Uh, Piali Singupta found through an unbiased screen mutating every gene in the genome that if the you could break a G, certain G protein coupled receptor and they can't they can't smell buttered popcorn anymore. Yeah. Uh, but you could put that G protein coupled receptor back and repair it or you could put it in new neurons to make it now aversive. Uh, the worms wouldn't run away from buttered popcorn. Uh, there are a series of experiments that made it very clear that it's G-protein coupled receptors actually are photoreceptors. Mm-hmm. In our own lab, we found a couple different sensory modalities uh, that are kind of overlooked. One of them is magnetosensation. Ooh. And then another is humidity sensation. Yeah, yeah. So th- these are two behaviors that are ubiquitous throughout many animals, uh, but... You know, the cellular physiological basis is poorly understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we, we worked on that here at UT. And then you asked for broad strokes. And we've also moved on to look at using the worm as a better model for neurological diseases, including Parkinson's disease and alcohol abuse and Alzheimer's disease and, and Down syndrome. Okay, so, so how does, so how does that work? It seems like we're all over the map. We're able to do that because the worm's such a small creature yeah. that... We're not confined to any brain nucleus or, you know, that we, we can study the animal as a whole. And all the techniques any member of our lab uses could be exploited by other labs. So they end up synergizing quite well. So, yeah, what, do, what of those topics, what do you want to hear? Ooh, do you, yeah, we have, a, we have a choice, Lauren. Yeah. Um, Alzheimer's is becoming um, a very, very prominent issue in our society. The cost burden is just seemingly growing and growing and growing across time. Yep. Um, so we can can we talk a little bit a bit about how big this problem is? It, it's a huge problem right now. Right now in America, the Alzheimer's Association estimates there's about five million people that currently suffer from Alzheimer's disease. And I mean, there are more and more families without a family history of Alzheimer's that are discovering that they're now stuck with Alzheimer's. And this is because people, uh, you know, with the advances in uh, dealing with cancers and cardiac issues and cholesterol, people are growing older uh, and age is the leading risk factor, unfortunately, for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so now that you know, not only the 5 million Americans have this, but 1 in 10 Americans over 65 have this, and it's the sixth leading cause of death. In just a few decades, it's estimated that more people will have Alzheimer's in this world than there are people living in Europe. Yeah. And, and right now, there's no way to prevent this. Mm-hmm. There's no effective treatment. There's no cure. Uh, and it's, it's a terrible situation to be in. How does that work in your research? How, how do you use the worm model to study Alzheimer's disease? What's the, what's the output? I used to mainly focus on these basic neuroscience topics I was talking about before, but I became interested in more medically relevant research when I did my postdoc at UCSF and worked with alcohol. And then during that time, my son was born, my first son, he has Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting. Most people don't know that virtually everyone with Down syndrome will develop early onset Alzheimer's disease. So between the ages of 40 and 60, that they'll, they'll get Alzheimer's disease. And then within usually less than a decade, you know, they pass away. So huge strides have been made in helping people with Down syndrome surmount medical problems they might have with heart issues or right now the limiting factor on their lifespan is Alzheimer's disease. And I wish more neuroscientists knew about this because even if I go to an Alzheimer's Association meeting, they'll say something like, uh, if we only knew who's going to get Alzheimer's, then we could give them these drugs to see if it could prevent Alzheimer's. And I raise my hand and I say, well, don't you know? Everyone, Down syndrome is going to get Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they'd be more than happy to take these drugs in, say, their 30s or or so and see if it prevents Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. This has become more of a reality once that in University of Arizona, they have a a new cognitive battery test to quantify whether or not cognition is declining or not in people with Down syndrome uh, with and without drugs that they might consider trying Mm -hmm. for Alzheimer's. Yeah. So anyhow, so I, I got interested in Alzheimer's once my son was born with this. Uh, starting my lab at UT, I decided to try out research with worms. 
Uh, so we engineered worms to carry a single copy of the human gene, APP. Uh, APP stands for amyloid precursor protein. You have it. I have it. We all have this gene. It It's a transmembrane protein. Uh, it's a, a protein that kind of hangs on the cell membrane. It can get cut up into different peptide fragments. Some of these are useful. Some of these end up being toxic. Lots of people have studied this for the past couple, two decades. There's lots of amazing research on this. One of the peptide fragments called A-beta can aggregate together to form the, the prominent plaques yeah. that are outside the neurons mm-hmm. uh, in Alzheimer's disease. There's debate about whether or not the plaques are bad or good. But right now, I, I think I can speak for many when it looks like the soluble or smaller portions of this black protein are the toxic portions. Yeah. Or, or maybe even, you know, and also the intracellular portion of this molecule. So we engineered worms to have this human APP protein. We put it throughout its nervous system and saw what would happen. And they, they look really normal. Yeah. Uh, my student was surprised to see this. But as they grew older, and old for worms like a week, um, <laughs> then they yeah. started moving funny and behaving funny. Mm-hmm. For instance, they were bending funny at the mid-body. Uh, wouldn't you know it? If you look through the animal, they're transparent like glass. You could see neurons dying right in the middle of their body that would control muscles there. So, but we looked at other neurons. A lot of them are, most of them remained healthy mm-hmm. uh, morphologically and functionally because they would move around fine. Yeah. So th- this is this was interesting to us because we found that uh, this APP molecule, which is throughout our whole brain in Alzheimer's, a major mystery is why is it kill neurons important for memory and yeah. not the whole brain? No one has a good answer for this just yet yeah there's some selectivity there yeah it's a, it's yeah. a no one's been able to find an answer to this but so i i found this result interesting because just like in human alzheimer's disease in our alzheimer's worms there was a subset of neurons that have the neurotransmitter acetylcholine that were predisposed to die first uh, and it was age related so we spent the next couple of years finding screening for drugs on the worm that would stop them from dying and we found a couple and we even use drugs that are in clinical trials Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of those work. Uh, they don't work great. Uh, we found some others that work better. It's interesting. We have some of the drugs that didn't work great. They were in clinical trials. Those clinical trials failed. Yeah. <laughs> so we the worm is. So we found that our worm model is predictive to not only find drugs that could be accepted for use in humans, but predict those that might not do so great. And we can use the worm as a rapid model to figure out new drugs or try to figure out how the drugs that are out there already might work. With mice, it's a lot slower. It takes like yeah. two years for them to, to really get old or yeah. months to years. And uh, that, so, most mouse models don't even have neurodegeneration. Uh, here we did. We, had, we knew what neuron was going to die when and where mm-hmm. exactly. So you have this really high throughput system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can really screen through many, many different drugs, many, many different mutants. To, and you also have the parts list, like you mentioned That's earlier. Right. So you really know specifically which neurons are being affected in the system. So you have this system with a lot of control, and uh, you can do it rapidly. So uh-huh. yeah. yeah, we can we can test. We can just put the drug. Uh, we cultivate worms on jello-filled plates. If we put the drug in, in the jello... We can put the Alzheimer's worms on the on these plates on a Monday and then count how many neurons are dead or alive on Friday. And if the drug works, then you'll see uh, the neurons here. We can make it even easier by adding transgenes that make the neurons go green or red. We can just see them right through their, their transparent bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want to see if the neurons are alive and functioning, then you can assay their behavior to see if the animal's moving correctly. Uh, worms don't have fantastic you know, memory processes like people, but they use these neurons for moving around using the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're really excited about a new discovery we had that's not published yet. Scoop. We... Uh, we're, finding, we're, we're pushing the model. We're seeing how far we can push this model. Alzheimer's disease can develop at, at different ages in one's life, and they have different genetic risk factors. So we're seeing if we tweak other genes, does that increase or decrease the risk for Alzheimer's and a neurogeneration yeah. error model? So it'll like get it on day one or something or day That's two? That's right. So yeah. what we did is we added uh, the most common risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is a gene that we have called ApoE. If you have the, the fourth variant, ApoE4, you are predisposed to get Alzheimer's at a much higher rate than the general population. Yeah. Uh, most people have the isoform 3, ApoE3 or 2. Yeah. Uh, so if you have number 4, that increases your chances by like five-fold. And if you, have, if you have two copies of that, you have like a 90% chance of getting Alzheimer's in your life. It's very mm-hmm. high. Yeah. So if when, when we added that to the worm, 
uh, my grad student Momo uh, Lee, he he found that the same neurons died faster at a younger age, just like you had kind of mirroring the human situation. Mm-hmm. And then another set of neurons synaptically downstream from them started dying. Mm. And that, that might mimic how people who have this ApoE4 genetic variant, Alzheimer's proceeds more aggressively. Yeah. And so I, I'm, we're, we're very excited to see if we can figure out, you know, why do some neurons, why are they vulnerable? Why are the neurons next to them? Why do they survive? Is there, are there survival factors or vulnerability factors? We're using cell-specific proteomic approaches to try to figure this out with, with worms. Yeah. And then we're also trying to figure out how the, the wave of degeneration appears to proceed, maybe synaptically. Uh, that looks like it might propagate through a mo- another molecule called tau in rodents and perhaps people. Worms have a version of that, too. We're, we're investigating if that's the, the factor or, or if there's something else going on. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless, it, it's a very fast model, so high-throughput model. So we're hoping to be able to make discoveries very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Is there some sort of new technology that you're excited about? to apply to your research that is maybe out there or that you see happening in the next five to 10 years? For within C. elegans, yeah. uh, my, so my goal is to use C. elegans to test, you know, thousand different hypotheses that you couldn't possibly try in mice mm-hmm. and then pass the baton to my friends who work with mice. And we've already done that by screening through hundreds of drugs and then finding the best one, working with our friends at Stanford. They test it in mouse models of Alzheimer's and see if it can boost cognition. So far, we have a really nice hit. And we're, we're, we're working to optimize and try to figure out what it finds. It's one yeah. thing to discover a drug. It's another to figure out how it works. That's really the hard part. Uh, if you go to a big meeting like the Alzheimer's Association or Society for Neuroscience, there are a lot of good candidates drugs and treatment ideas out there, but tweaking them to really work and work across different people with genetic backgrounds, that will be a challenge. So we're hoping to uh, speed that process and collaborate with our friends who work with mice. So for new techniques, uh, I mentioned that we're we're beginning to try to use cell-specific proteomics. Yeah. that This is a really exciting area. It's one thing to look at all the proteins that are in a brain region, but it's it's another thing to look at proteins that are made in a specific cell. Yeah, and as you mentioned, that it is specific cells that seem to be vulnerable, vulnerable yeah. to being affected um, in these models. So, so there have been huge advances in mass spectrometry uh, that allow you to really not only tell the difference between proteins and different conditions, but quantify them too. Uh, so what we're doing is we're using an approach pioneered at Caltech where we can have certain cells incorporate non-canonical amino acids. These are amino acids that you wouldn't normally be able to put into yeah. your proteins. Sort of sort of synthetic biology synthetic. type of stuff. That's yeah. right. But we can we can force certain cells in the worm's body to incorporate these synthetic amino acids into their proteins. Uh, and then, you know, so we can do that in one situation with the vulnerable cells, another situation with the resistant cells, and then we can use ma- mass spectrometry to figure out what are the peptides that are in these vulnerable neurons versus the resistant ones mm. that are sitting right next to them. Yeah. Is there any okay. list of candidate molecules yeah. that could be the protective ones or the, the ones that make them vulnerable? Then, because genetics is so easy with worms, we can very quickly come around and knock every one of those out and retest if they're necessary or sufficient for vulnerability or uh, resistance to death from these Alzheimer's genes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is to something, it'd be great you know, with, with mice or some slower system, you could get a list, but you wouldn't be very difficult to test all of them. Yeah, and you um, want some mechanism and you, to sort through that's the, right. the, this or else we're going to be doing it for a thousand years. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So we, we're hoping to speed up this process and give people a short list. Do you see, to solve some of these big neuroscience problems and these translational problems, this sort of collaborative matrix needs to be formed where people working on the worms are talking to the people working on the mice, talking to people working on the humans, and people developing drugs. And- uh-huh. Yeah, it already is happening. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't happened as much, I think. Historically, a lot of people working with worms worked on uh, more basic questions, uh, fundamental basic science. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, C. elegans were used, a lot of people don't know this, but they were used to discover a lot of neuronal molecules. And this is especially synaptic ones. Uh, you've probably heard of MUNC13. That's named after UNC13, the uncoordinated mutant number 13 in C. elegans. Mm-hmm. And with C. elegans, uh, this is totally underappreciated. It's a great model for neuroscience because you can knock out genes and port 
critical genes in synaptic transmission uh, or even movement like myosin or synaptotagmin. Or if you did that in a fly or a mouse or a monkey, they die. Yeah, yeah. If you knock that out in worms, they can't move, but they can still reproduce because the worms are hermaphroditic. They don't need to reproduce to find a mate. They have egg and sperm. They can't. They their babies explode out of them, and then they. You can still study this in a viable animal, mm-hmm. making huge progress. Yeah. So there's as far as synaptic mutants, neuronal genes, worms are a really nice system for that. The GABA, you know, vesicular transporter was first discovered in worms. Most of the netrin pathway was discovered in worms. The Nobel Prize in 2002 was given to worm researchers for discovering genes involved that give rise to cancer and also cell death. That was all worked out first in worms. Uh, but now we're entering an era with labs like myself and others that are finding that worms are, can be useful for finding drugs that could be applicable for human diseases. We're, we're emboldened by some positive results there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I expect more labs will move in that direction. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Can you talk maybe about somebody's work that you're really excited about, maybe somebody that's influenced your thinking as well? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. I mean, there's tons of people who have influenced yeah, me, yeah. Uh, whether I'm <laughs> conscious of it or not. Uh, yeah. Since starting my lab at UT, I've kind of... Uh, there, there's a movement to try to get fancy techniques, uh, fancy methodologies, not just with words across the whole of neuroscience. Uh, and it's led to amazing tools like optogenetics and you know, these transgenic techniques that have really changed everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also changed worms. These techniques have been around longer in worms. They were first tested in worms before they moved on to mice. So they're they're a little bit old for me now thinking yeah, about yeah. them. You know, I'll, gi- I'll give two examples. One is like Eve Martyr uh, is a hero of mine in the stomatic gastric ganglion community. They're totally underappreciated. I was blown away that you could, you know, dissect out this ganglion and see it beating away for a week uh, in a dish perfectly and then apply different neuromodulators and watch it change within seconds to minutes uh, and then back again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very impressive. And yeah. those experiments from the 80s onward have shown that connectivity is not going to teach you everything. You really need to understand the neurological theory states and how they change intrinsic properties and synaptic properties. Yeah, which is uh, a good lesson to keep in mind, I suppose, as we strive for these big projects where we're mapping the connectome and we're mm-hmm. trying to map every synapse in the cortex of a mouse or something, visual cortex. Yeah, we've right? had the, the, the synaptic map in C. elegans mostly for, since the 80s, and yeah. it, we still can't figure out what it all means. I hate to say it. You can get from any one neuron in the worm to another one with at most six synapses. So actually, you know, a big question is how do you, how does the worm even think or move uh, without like an ion channel opening up in one neuron inadvertently screwing up the signals and yeah. three neurons downstream? It's, it's pretty, it's a big question. Uh, but Eve Martyr got me thinking about how we can understand how a neural network can switch from one state to another for, to control endogenous behavior. Uh, usually you dump on pharmacological tools and try to deduce which ion channels are operating. But pharmacology is pretty limited in what it can influence. And usually it has off-target effects that mm-hmm. no one, that's kind of, they're more dirtier than people would like to acknowledge. So genetics is much cleaner, can be cleaner. So I, as a postdoc, I started studying how worms can switch between different locomotory states. And here at UT, we continued that and found that worms can switch between crawling and swimming gates. And we could use optogenetics to get them to inappropriately switch from one gate to the other in the wrong environmental context. So just switching on a light to excite dopamine neurons, you could get a swimming worm in water to start crawling inappropriately. Yeah. It thought that it was on land. Mm-hmm. You're making it hallucinate. It's fun. Uh, yeah. And then, and then you could, and then you could <laughs> do the, they use serotonin for kind of realizing that they're on land land and start moving faster. Um, So I'm hoping that we can continue these studies to use a kind of genetic approach to complement what Eve Martyr and all the SDG, uh, stomatic gastroganglion people have done. Again, so a lot of people are moving towards these fancier, more expensive, harder to master techniques. I I find it fun to go retro. Seymour Benzer pioneered behavioral genetics in Drosophila uh, from a forward genetics so he, he found the, you know, the first genes that are in us too, but first in flies that control your concept of time or memory or attraction, uh, sexual attraction. Mm-hmm. And he, he did beautiful, simple experiments 
to deduce you know, molecule genes that are required for this and, and how they work within the nervous system. Uh, it, it's just really simple, elegant experiments back in the 1970s and not, you didn't necessarily need fancy techniques. So yeah. our, our lab's kind of taken that approach inspired by them yeah. to study how you know worms can sense magnetic fields. So if you just take a refrigerator magnet, put it near worms, you can see them orient to it in this funny pattern that shows that they really can sense it. They don't even go towards it. They go at an angle towards it, arcing towards it. If you set up more you know, just simple straight fields, They'll, they'll move at angles to it that depend on where they came from on Earth. Worms, we find, they orient to the magnetic field, it seems, to optimize their, their burrowing upward or downward mm. in the soil substrate, it yeah, seems. Yeah, because... I guess it's kind of like uh, your worm, you're in dirt. It's it's maybe akin to somebody trapped in an avalanche, like you hear about. You don't know which way is up or down or whatever. So how do you? Yeah, if they were sense... a bit he- if they were a bit heavier, uh, yeah. it might be easier for them to use gravity. Yeah. to go up or down. Uh, we don't. Maybe they do, do use gravity, but. Uh, when they're in a substrate that has a bit of water in it uh, and soil around it, they might be buoyant and it might be difficult to tell what's up from down. Uh, so we found that if you yeah, inject worms from the nor- northern hemisphere in a, in a tube, they prefer to burrow downward. But if you get worms from Australia, inject them in a tube, they prefer to burrow upward, consistent with the opposite polarity of magnetic field coming, you know, piercing into or out of the earth from the northern or southern hemispheres. Yeah. So it's really fun. Fun. And that now we can really rapidly test uh, which neurons are used to sense the field, which molecules are used to sense it, just by taking a refrigerator magnet and watching these worms move towards it or, or not. Yeah, and then that's the sort that's of simple the behavioral analysis approach. Yeah, for... so we, we didn't, yeah, it turns out we didn't need fancy you know, new assays to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that that's that's fun. I, I think something that uh, the worm field and other fields are just beginning to use uh, are more powerful statistical ways to get it with population genetics to get at what genes contribute to what phenotypes. Yeah, uh, we're beginning to use this with C. elegans mm-hmm. for uh, for this project to figure out what genes are involved in worms from around the world to do this behavior, but also some medically relevant behaviors like uh, their susceptibility to get intoxicated by alcohol. Yeah, uh, their different environments conveyed different pressures on their how they could survive or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes they're associated more with alcohol or not. Yeah. So we're trying to figure out what genes lead to uh, more or less sensitivity for alcohol. And we'll see whether or not they relate to differences in sensitivity for, for mammals as well. You sort of had a, a pretty personal reason to start research uh, specifically in the domain of Down syndrome, uh-huh. Alzheimer's. Does it feel different when you're uh, when you're working on those topics? Is there is there a bit of an emotional charge there versus some of your other work that maybe has less personal relevance? Yeah, I mean, it feel I feels like I have a big responsibility trying to push Down syndrome research forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Alzheimer's disease research. Down syndrome, there's just so little Down syndrome research being done. I mean, you can count, I think there's fewer than five grants nationwide. Is there uh, with is Down there syndrome reason? in the title? Yeah. Um, is there a particular, that's a great question. Yeah. When I started my own lab, I naively thought that, oh, you, you would think that the most common you know, disabilities or you know, conditions out there would be funded proportionally to their prevalence. But that's not true at all. Um, and there are different reasons for that. One is that you know, different conditions have a lobby behind them. Like, uh, and, and, you know, Alzheimer's is a great example that it's a huge need to help people with Alzheimer's. There's no treatment or cure. They're going to die within a decade. And we definitely need more funds for Alzheimer's research. But uh, if you look at, you know, how much is spent on Down syndrome research, given the prevalence, uh, it, it's pathetic. They get f- far less than, you know, research for uh, cystic fibrosis or you know, some of the more rare conditions. Yeah, yeah. With Down syndrome, I suspect also that scientists have been opposed, adverse to working on it because it's caused by an extra 21st chromosome. So there are my mouse models of that. Uh, one, the most popular one has about half of the 200 genes represented on an extra chromosome. They don't breed as easily, so there are some practical concerns. So if yeah, you're a yeah. grad student working on a project, for instance, do you want to work on fragile X, which is very rare, uh, or Down syndrome, which is very common, the most common form of intellectual disability? Um, with fragile X, we know that it's due to a mutation in one gene. And we have these mice, they can breed. Not so many people have it, 
Uh, it's, it is a pretty devastating condition, so progress could be made on it. But another intellectual disability, Down syndrome, which about half a million people have that in the U.S., we don't even know which of the 200 genes contribute to this disorder on the, you know, on the 21st chromosome. Yeah. So I, I, I feel like I want to try to think hard about how to you know get answers out there that will encourage people to work on this. So yeah, we're, we're, we, our lab, we're trying to use the strengths of this worm model again to as an ultra-fast model, test all these genes. Yeah, and you said that you sort of feel a bit of this personal responsibility to get the message out. Yeah, encourage re- more people to do research on it. Yeah. And yeah, so if I pe- if I see people at SFN who are th- considering working on it, I, I, I try to put them in touch with the LUMIND, which is the Down Syndrome Private Foundation for Down Syndrome Research, or try to point out how they could might get funding on their projects. So yeah, it, we, we, it'd be great if we could get more people working on that. What are good programs? And I know you're a little bit involved in this. What are good ways that adults with Down syndrome can engage in education? What are some good programs and what are some methods that you're involved in for? I haven't talked about this here yet, but uh, you know, research is slow. So that as a father, you know, it's really disappointing to not see us make breathtaking discoveries every week to advance my son's life and his friend, you know friends with Down syndrome. Education can be quicker. So people with Down syndrome have you know a need for research on their on their condition, but they also have a need for educational and employment opportunities after when they become adults. It's well known that they have you know they, there are special education programs that can help them while they're through K through 12 situation, but after that there's a dearth of there's like a cliff and every parent worries about that throughout their whole life. So it provides this extra level of anxiety for all the families that should be unnecessary. So what we've done here at UT is I started a program in 2009 where we teach uh, academic classes to adults with Down syndrome and now autism, traumatic brain injury, and other uh, intellectual and developmental disorders. And we include UT students there too. So we a class typically has about 13 adults with intellectual disability, developmental disability, and then six UT students. And these are students who are UT neuroscience students in the grad program, the undergraduate program, other uh, education majors, uh, people who might become future doctors or medical technicians. This is our chance to get them to know each other while they're ha- you know healthy, uh, to get UT students can see the full capacity that the people with intellectual disabilities are capable of learning and appreciating. So we'll have classes as diverse as on Japanese culture or on, on the history of basketball, getting the UT basketball team involved, or foreign cultures and neuroscience. I've taught classes on alcohol, uh, Parkinson's disease, memory tricks. It's really eye-opening to have UT students who've heard about Down syndrome but don't really know anyone with Down syndrome come into a class and learn alongside these topics. And uh, oftentimes UT students can 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 learn from them. We can get bi-directional learning. Like I taught a drug discovery class once where every week we talked about a different drug. Oftentimes the UT students, they kind of knew the physiology but not what drugs really do. Yeah. Uh, but the adults with disabilities, they were on these drugs and they could talk about it firsthand. Mm. And neither of the, the groups knew how the drugs were discovered. So it, it really made for really good interactive classes. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's a great program and we continue to recruit volunteers year round. If people are interested in that, they could search me out on the internet and mm-hmm. uh, look for volunteer opportunities. And can we quickly plug what you're raising money for yeah. and how people can contribute? Right now, we're, we're trying to raise funds to support undergraduate research for Alzheimer's. We, we recruit between you know, 5 to 15 undergraduates to help in our lab. Most of them, yeah, they, they volunteer in our lab through the goodness of their hearts, and we, tr- we yeah. train them. But it's tough for undergrads to do this, especially in the summertime when they need part-time jobs or such. So we're, we've been trying to raise some funds to subsidize uh, the cost of living for a few undergrads to Ooh. volunteer in our lab. This can not only help us make some discoveries for basic science and, and some potential medicines for Alzheimer's, but also get these you know, some of these great undergrads hooked on Alzheimer's research. And hopefully after they leave UT, they will become great Alzheimer's researchers and make even bigger discoveries. Yeah. Uh, you can find the, f- the fundraiser by Googling Horn Razor and looking for the Alzheimer's Project, and you can tr- contribute donations there. Uh, if you don't have funds but you're interested, please pass this note along to your friends. Uh, this is how effective online campaigning, you know, fundraise campaigning really works. You can make a huge difference. We've already raised about half our goal of about 15000 to pay for the undergrad summer stipends as well as, you know, supplement the grad students who are helping train them. Mm-hmm. So thank you. 
Thank you for joining us, and we'll put some links on our website. Thank Appreciate you very much. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah sorry. That's my birthday, guys. Yeah. I would. I could talk for hours. all for today's episode if you want to help dr john pierce do his amazing work head over to horn razor and there you can find dr pierce's campaign all of your donations help undergraduates look for treatments for alzheimer's this is such a good cause so be sure to go check out and give what you can we want to thank our sponsor again maze engineers any neuroscientists out there doing animal behavior work you gotta go check them out Head over to mazeengineers.com slash brain matters and enter the code PERK for 10% off your entire quote. For all things brain matters, follow us at Brain Podcast on Twitter or on Facebook or check out our website, brainpodcast.com. And if you like the show, subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks to everyone that's done that already. Your kind words always make me feel amazing. And we have a small stack left of Brain Matters magnets that we will ship to you for free. Just DM us on Facebook or Twitter with your address and you'll receive a nice magnet in the mail. The music on today's episode was by Ara Black. I love his work so much. Go check it out at soundcloud.arablack.com or you can go to brainpodcast.com and we'll have links for you there. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.